0: I need your help tonight. I need your help in talking about this Helsinki situation. The press conference that's been on the top of everyone's mind, that's been the subject of such recrimination and analysis and controversy. President Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin together on the world stage, and the president, the current president of the United States, making the interesting move of siding with Vladimir Putin against the American intelligence community, saying, yeah, our guys got it wrong. Our guys don't know what they're talking about. But this here guy here, this despot from another country who we know sanctions, and gives orders to kill political dissidents and violates human rights on a massive scale and is generally a bad guy who seeks to annex other nations and is an anti-libertarian figure on the world stage. He can be trusted. His word can be trusted at face value. But our intelligence officials, those guys are shady. You shouldn't listen to them. I need your help in talking about this because I don't know how to do so. I don't know how to do Let me Let me be clear. I know how to talk about it, all right? You're getting a little flavor for how I am going to talk about it. But I need help in talking about it to you, talking about it with you in such a way that we can actually have a productive conversation. Because I I struggle to formulate my thoughts around this in such a way that's going to result in anything other than you just turning the radio off.
1: Is there a productive conversation to be had, though? Because everything that I've heard addresses the ancillary points, but I've heard very few, if at all people other than maybe Sean Hannity, say that what Trump did was okay. Because you can attack the U.S. policy against Russia up to this point. Mm -hmm. You can attack the fake news media liberal journalist. Right. You can... Attack the left's dialogue about it, you know, just the over drama of calling him treasonous and whatnot. But I have not heard anyone say that what Trump did was right because I don't think it was. Objectively, it was not.
0: You know, now that you mention it, I have not heard anybody make that claim either. I guess I have assumed that that's the default, you know, truly gung ho pro-Trump position is that everything he does, regardless of context or effect, is awesome, which would inherently include this. But come to think of it, I cannot recall seeing or reading anything to the effect of, yes, this was awesome, is exactly what Trump should have said and exactly the way he should have said it. I have, on the other hand, seen a lot of attempts to try to soft-pedal it. And to try to make it yeah seem like it's not such an outstanding or noteworthy thing.
1: Well I when I heard him say it, I can't say that I was surprised well, no. that he said it. No. No. He it was just a red herring, whataboutism. It was he he took the chance to politicize it instead of actually addressing the issue like he should have. And it's Trump M.O. just kind of catching up with him.
0: Yeah, well, and truly, because we find ourselves looking at a situation where for possibly the first time ever, President Trump has backpedaled on a statement and done so extraordinarily quickly. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Catch us streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. You can catch up on past shows by doing a search for Closing Argument in our iHeartRadio app, and our channel will pop right up for you. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us and give me a hand in processing the news of the weekend, the news of the past 48 hours and more. Brad Ullman takes those calls and produces the show. Before we get to Anthony and St. Paul, the latest from Bloomberg, President Donald Trump said Tuesday today he accepts the conclusion by U.S. intelligence agencies that Russia interfered in the U.S. presidential election, marking a rare retreat from comments just a day earlier amid a backlash from Republicans. But even with a prepared statement in hand, he introduced doubt looking up from the text and saying that the meddling in the 2016 election could be other people also. Trump came under a torrent of criticism from both Democrats and Republicans for statements at his summit with Russian President Vladimir Putin in Helensky Monday, casting doubt on the U.S. findings denied by Putin that Russia meddling in the 2016 election occurred. Let's go to Anthony in St. Paul. Welcome to the program.
2: Hey, thank you so much for taking my call. So I'm going to part this out just a little bit. So normally, whenever I call, um, I obviously am very much a uh, Trump supporter. Right. But I think in this case, I'm not so sure I agree. I I didn't mind the fact that he didn't call uh, Vladimir Putin a liar on national TV and that he, you know, said that the FBI is less trustworthy than, you know, uh, Putin. I mean, let's be honest. He's faced nothing but uh, partisan investigations for the last year and a half. Every single agency has been against him. Mm-hmm. The Mueller investigation, like, come on. Right. But what I wholeheartedly do not agree with, normally Trump does stuff like this to... he gets, He gets good reactions out of people, which he happened, which he also did, this time, like with everything he does, but this time I don't really agree with him uh, drawing it back and saying he accepts the conclusion that Russia meddled in the election. Because as much as the media and these uh, quote-unquote intelligence agencies um, say that Russia meddled with the, in the election, they really have nothing except for a few a few Russian hackers in their freaking underwear in their mom's basement. That are typing stuff on Facebook to piss people off from both sides. There's really nothing else that they that they have there, honestly. But so I well, don't know why he drew it back. He never draws anything back, and yeah. that's why we're so ardent in, in his in support for him because we're tired of people uh, retracing their steps and trying to and trying to
3: backpedal.
0: Well, because he 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 crossed a line here. He crossed a line here that that stepped on the toes of a wide spectrum of bipartisan folks you know by by taking by standing up next to an american adversary and essentially saying you can take this guy's word as gospel but you know the people who we entrust with the responsibility of investigating uh, our intelligence that we utilize to form foreign policy in this country those guys are shady yeah people are dummy isn't
2: the cold war over it's been like many years man like I, I thought the Cold War was over. Why is why is Russia all of a sudden seen as this as this enemy now? Like Reagan, like I thought that was over. When when well, Reagan, there's
0: a difference like, between there's a difference between enemy there's a difference between enemy and adversary. You know, we're not at war with Russia, and I don't think we ought to seek war with Russia. But there's no question that Vladimir Putin is an antagonist. You know, and the and the role. I mean, I appreciate the call as always, Anthony. I appreciate your thoughts. It, I think we need to be clear about what it is that we're talking about. You know, when Anthony says that there's no evidence that Russia meddled in the 2016 election, I do not agree with that. I do not think that's a factual statement. What I do agree with and what I've said multiple times on this program and stand by is that to date, there is precisely no evidence of collusion between the Donald Trump campaign and the Russians with the shared goal of affecting the election on behalf of Donald Trump. There's no evidence of that, but that is a completely separate claim from whether or not the Russians on some level took action that was meant to interfere with our election process. And on, on that question, the evidence is clear that they did now to Anthony's point, you certainly can parse through and, Picknits about what that means, whether or not you're talking about independent actors that were supported on some level by the Russian government or, or independent actors from Russia that are rooted in Russia that aren't necessarily part of the Russian government, that were just acting on their own accord. We can have that debate, I guess. The point remains that foreigners were engaged in activity meant to affect our election process. And the other point of contention that I think is legitimate is what was the nature of that meddling and what was what was the actual influence of it? Were votes actually changed as a result of a stupid Facebook ad? Probably not, not to any significant degree. And I think this is, I think Trump, I'll just give you my bottom line on where I think Trump's psychology is on this. Donald Trump is a very proud man. I, I that that's the the most cordial way I can put it. He's very proud. He believes in himself and he's very he is his own greatest defender. Nobody's stepping forward to defend Donald Trump better than Donald Trump is. And he's so vested in defending his brand, defending the public perception of himself particularly as a winner, because that's his whole brand, that's his whole thing is I'm a winner. The things I do result in winning. That's what I'm all about, right? I think this is a pretty non-controversial statement that I'm making here, that Donald Trump is about winning. That's what he's about. And so what the Russian collusion narrative does, or or even forget the collusion, what the Russian meddling narrative does is it calls into question whether or not Donald Trump's win was legitimate whether or not his win was truly earned or if it was the result of interference by foreign nationals and donald trump finds that idea so offensive the idea that his win wasn't legitimate that his win was affected by foreign actors acting whatever their intention was that he's willing to deny the possibility that it happened just to uphold the narrative that he won because he ran a great campaign. That's more important. That's what's of primary importance to him is his reputation as a winner to the detriment of the integrity of our intelligence service, the integrity of our national institutions. And that is a problem. I don't care who you are. I don't care what party you're affiliated with. I don't care if you voted for him or not. Having the president of the United States Hold having his personal desire for his brand to be maintained as a winner to have that be his primary consideration above and beyond the sustainable integrity of American institutions is a problem and something that we cannot let go unanswered. Let's talk to Barry in St. Paul. Welcome to the program.
2: Hey, I, I want to agree with what you just said. I, I totally agree with you, but my my whole question is when Obama was president, didn't we meddle in elections overseas? let alone With with allies, not even enemies, but allies in Israel, and it was clear we did it. How is that not being talked about just as much as them meddling in our elections? And isn't it, it, we can, why can't they?
0: It's a fair point, it's a fair question, and I I appreciate it, Barry. My short answer, because we do have to go to a break, my short answer is that just like Mama used to tell you, just because the other people do it doesn't make it right, right? And you know this is something we're going to talk about later tonight when we get into other topics, particularly we when we get into the the latest regarding Scarlett Johansson and the disposition of her role that she was going to play, which was that of a transgender individual. Uh She's decided she's not going to do that now, and her reasoning is insane. Her reasoning is that is the same as those who were complaining about her getting the role in the first place. And it all speaks to the fact that as a culture, as a society, we are completely unmoored from the concept of truth. We do not care what is real. We do not care what is true. And the the problem that I see, look, I, I understand the frustration that Barry's speaking to there. I share it. The frustration with what the left gets away with, with what Obama got away with, with what Hillary has gotten away with. And they've gotten away with things that are criminal. Criminal. Hillary should be in jail, right? Obama probably should be in jail. They've gotten away with things that are, ups- he certainly should have been impeached. You know, one of the things that people have been pointing to is the fact that Obama was caught in a hot mic telling, what was it, Medvedev, Medvedev I believe was the guy's name, Russian figure at the time. Oh, yeah, you know, just uh, take it easy on me during the election. I'll have more flexibility with you. This was in 2012 when he was going up against Romney. Yeah, you remember that? Where was the media on that? Nowhere, right? And I agree, the double standard is there, and it's horrible, and it sucks, and the media is horrible. All true. None of that provides the least bit of justification to what Donald Trump did on Monday. Closing argument. My name is Walter Routson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, Twin Cities News Talk. Dak. So let me try to put this in a nutshell for you. My response to the Helsinki situation, the press conference which took place yesterday with President Donald Trump and Russian President Vladimir Putin. We have a situation whereby what I regard as an apparent self-evident truth is being evaded and ignored and downplayed by a wide variety of political actors because they care more about fill in the blank. They care more about their agenda or their reputation or their brand or whatever the case may be than they do about what is true. And that valuation, that set of priorities, acts as a detriment to American interests going forward. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, six five one nine eight nine five eight five five. Russia, Vladimir Putin specifically, his objective, and this is the clear, what I regard to be the clear self-evident truth, Vladimir Putin has a vested interest in sowing chaos in our political system. That's the truth. Okay, he I don't think he cares how Donald Trump does. I don't think he was interested in getting Donald Trump elected because he loves Donald Trump. I think he was interested in acting in ways that result in the maximum amount of chaos within the American political system, in pitting us against each other, in dividing to eventually conquer. That's his objective. He wants chaos. He wants division. He wants vitriol and drama and all of the things that he got as a result of this press conference. Vladimir Putin's the winner coming out of this. And so the question for everyone involved, from Donald Trump to his supporters, to the media, to those on the left who are part of the resistance The question for all of them is, are are you going to allow yourself to be played by this guy? Are you going to allow yourself to step to his tune, to read from his script? Because the reactions of literally everybody are exactly what Vladimir Putin wants. He wants us to be at each other's throats. He He wants Donald Trump to be discrediting his own intelligence agencies right he wants the left to be talking about how the president of the united states is guilty of treason he wants talk of censorship and impeachment and, and he wants all of us to to question the integrity of our electoral process he wants to foster the these notions that Democracy, you know, I I understand it's a republic. Please don't give me that lecture. But that our democratic processes don't work and that they can't be trusted. That's what he wants. And so strategically, if you're going to acknowledge that Vladimir Putin in particular and the Russian Federation, that these entities are antagonists for us on the world stage, if we acknowledge that, and we acknowledge that they have an agenda that is not in our best interest. Shouldn't the question be, how do we act in such a way as to undermine their agenda? And that's not the chief question on anybody's mind. It's not the top question on Donald Trump's mind. It's not, certainly not the top question on any Democrat's mind. It's certainly not the top question on the media's mind. Everybody's more interested in their personal, political, or social objective closer to home. Democrats are more interested in revving up the resistance going into the 2018 midterm elections. Donald Trump's more interested in protecting his brand, protecting his reputation as a winner. The media is more interested in, you know, pretending that they're all Edward R. Murrow and that they're all speaking truth to power and playing that kabuki theater game. You know, nobody, it seems, nobody in a position of prominence, nobody in a position of real influence, Is taking the position that, you know what? We have our differences, legitimate, meaningful differences as Americans. However, one thing we all ought to be able to agree on is that we're not going to dance on the end of a string for a Russian despot. We're not going to value our own political or personal agendas above the long-term interest of the United States of America. Is that a controversial statement? I wouldn't think so. Is that a controversial position to <laughs> to push back against the not-so-hidden agenda of Vladimir Putin and say, you know what, it's a little bit more important to call out Putin right now for stirring up trouble than it is to score points against the Democrats. Or, conversely, it's a little bit more important to undermine the very obvious agenda of Vladimir Putin than it is to pursue the resistance and retake Congress in 2018 if you're a Democrat. Yeah, can, can there be, for one moment, an inkling of selflessness here? Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. 651-989-5855. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035
3: FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.
0: Cities faces all around me they smile, they Get into two very different reactions to the Helsinki press conference with President Donald Trump and Russian President Vladimir Putin. One comes from the editorial board of the Weekly Standard and is critical of the president. The other is a compendium of reactions from Senator Rand Paul in defense of the president. Closing argument My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM. Catch us streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. You can join us at 651-989-5855. Brad Oman takes those calls and produces the show. Starting at the weekly standard, our editors do not hold identical opinions on the frequently baffling and always-changing phenomenon known as President Donald Trump. It's fair to say that none of us is a fan of the president, but some of us are more critical, some more sympathetic. All of us, however, were appalled and saddened by Trump's behavior in Helsinki, Finland on Monday. Trump has, of course, long refused to concede what's patently obvious to everybody else, that operatives of the Russian government interfered in the 2016 presidential election. The president has long been unwilling to admit this reality, feeling as he does that the media likes to talk about it, mainly in order to suggest that he only won the election against Hillary Clinton with the aid of Russian troublemakers. It is perhaps understandable that a narcissist like Trump would feel some inner conflict about dealing with this subject. The trouble is that he does not and evidently cannot distinguish between a the now well-documented verdict that Russian operatives interfered with the U.S. election and b) the as yet unproven accusation that the Trump campaign actively participated with the Russians in their efforts. So offended is he by even the mention of the latter that he's willing to deny the former, even to the point of publicly taking the word of Russian dictator Vladimir Putin against his own intelligence personnel on the question of Russian meddling. Trump has chosen in public not to grasp the difference between the two. Asked whether Trump credits American intelligence officials' uh, conclusion that the Russian government was behind the hacking of the Democratic National Committee server Trump could have declined to answer or answered vaguely. Instead, the president complained again that the FBI didn't confiscate his 2016 opponent's email server and then took Putin's, Putin's side, saying, my people came to me, Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats and some others, and they said they think it's Russia. I have President Putin. He just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be Russia. Now, Trump today came out and, said, and corrected this word said that he meant to say he doesn't see any reason why it wouldn't be Russia. That seems odd to me, I'm just going to go ahead and say. I don't I don't understand, like, looking back at how he said it in the context in which he said it, I don't understand how that could have possibly been the case, but whatever, we'll take his word for it. Continuing at the Weekly Standard, it got worse when Putin, not Trump, but Putin, was asked why Americans should believe that Russia did not interfere in the 2016 election, Trump jumped in to defend his friend. The president interjected, saying the whole concept of that came up perhaps a little bit before, but it came out as a reason why the Democrats lost an election, which, frankly, they should have been able to win because the electoral college is more advantageous for Democrats, as you know, than it is to Republicans. We ran a brilliant campaign, and that's why I'm president. That Trump said all of this on foreign soil and in the presence of the nation's chief adversary only adds to the outrage. The president's defenders, incapable as ever of criticizing the man for any reason, are now comparing the president's remarks to Barack Obama's 2012 open mic remarks to Russian Foreign Minister Dmitry Medvedev. That, quote, I'll have a lot more flexibility after I win the election in 2012, unquote. That was a deplorable moment in presidential history, to be sure, but it doesn't compare to what Trump did in openly crediting a foreign dictator's assessment over that of American intelligence officials, particularly when the dictator's assessment is so obviously a lie. In any case, we are fully confident that if Barack Obama had expressed himself as Donald Trump did today, the latter's defenders would have condemned Obama as the stooge of a foreign government, and they would have been right to do so. That is the editorial board over at the weekly standard, and you know, look, those guys those guys take a harsher view of Trump than I do, to be sure, but their points here are merited. The, look, think of it this way: Donald Trump has has taken every opportunity and with cause to undermine the credibility of you know the deep state. The Department of Justice, the FBI, the, the media, right? He's, he's made every effort to call into question and to encourage other people to question the claims made by his political adversaries with merit, right? You know, the, the, we, we should take a skeptical look at the claims of literally anybody, but especially those who have very obvious agendas. But to contrast that against the, what he's asking us to do with Putin which is to just take Putin at his word that what he says is true because he said it and because he said it strongly and firmly. What? This, this is what's so bizarre. And this actually lends credence to the narrative that there's something fishy going on. Now, I don't think there is. I don't think there is. I think that what's going on is actually relatively simple. It's Trump's ego. And, and that bears out in the quotes that are cited here by the weekly standard. His concern, every time he has an opportunity to speak, what is it that he's trying to get across? Every time Trump interjects himself or responds to a question, his focus is I won and the one was legitimate and the campaign was brilliant and I'm awesome and I'm a winner. That's his focus. That's what he cares about. And that's his motivation in why he's taking the action, why he said what he said yesterday, and why he's taking the actions that he's taking. It's not because, you know, he's he's in bed with Vladimir Putin, right, and he's colluding with the Russians to affect American elections. That's not what it is. It's he wants the, he doesn't want an asterisk next to his presidency. He doesn't want an asterisk next to his defeat of Hillary Clinton. He wants it to be known through the ages that he overcame all the odds, and beat her fair and square. That's his top objective. Let's go to Sue in St. Paul. Welcome to the program.
4: Okay, hey, well my one of my first reactions to this yesterday was that that the questions were asked by the press in the first place. You know, this was a meeting just to get to know each other, you know. How do you do no there was nothing specific on the agenda, you know. Mm-hmm. Any other president had it been Obama, they would have said you know what did you talk about? Blah blah blah. You know did you come to any agreements about anything? But they came, they out and out asked them right in front of Putin at supposedly a just getting to know each other meeting
3: mm-hmm.
4: and bringing up some this sort of thing. Is he was he supposed to stand there after a meeting and call him a liar? You know uh, when he said no. Uh,
0: I don't know that that was the expectation. I mean even in the the editorial board here at the Weekly Standard grants that he could have just answered vaguely he could have sidestepped it he didn't but he certainly didn't have to respond in the way that he did
4: well my impression of his answer was that it was rather vague and kind of running running along but and then to make even worse yet they asked putin if he had any dirt on trump what kind of a question is that for the the press to be asking about the american president you know Mm -hmm. um (laughs) What is is Putin going to say yeah?
0: Um, if, yeah, it's a stupid question.
4: And I thought I thought these questions were made to embarrass the, both of them, uh, but for sure Trump make and make him look weak. You know that the press is asking these embarrassing questions, Bob. In other words, our president's a dirtbag. And you, you do you have any proof of this? You know. Mm. And my my second <clears throat> impression was that the, all this squealing was just. Absolutely, way out of line. I mean, it was hardly treason. It surely was not a. It was not a slick answer. I mean, Kennedy would have had a, a smooth answer, mm-hmm. something like that. Donald Trump never has smooth answers. But, uh,
0: yeah, I, I take your point Sue, and I appreciate you calling in to make it. I agree. And the obviously the le- this, look. Two things can be true at once, right? The left is terrible. This is true. The media is stupid. Yep, they're incompetent. They don't actually do the job of engaging in journalism, reporting the who, what, when, where, why in a factual manner in order to inform the public. This is true. It's also true that what Donald Trump said was beyond ill-advised. You don't undermine the integrity of your own intelligence service at at the same time that you're telling the world that they ought to take the word of your adversary at face value as the unvarnished truth because it was strongly said. It's not, look, the media did not make Donald Trump say that. You, know, you can you can say, well, the question shouldn't have been asked or it shouldn't have been asked the way it was or whatever. Okay, whatever. I'll, I'll grant you that. The media is dumb. Yes. The left is insane. Yup. Very true. But they didn't answer the question. They didn't say what Trump said. He did. And so we have to deal with that. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter and Twin Cities News Talk. AM 1130, 103.5 FM. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Well, I took a to walk around the world to ease my troubled mind. The Weekly Standard is not a fan of Donald Trump's performance yesterday in Helsinki alongside Russian President Vladimir Putin. Just shared the content of their editorial with you. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Let's talk with Jacob in North St. Paul. Thanks for holding.
5: Yeah, thanks for having me. A couple of things. I'm not a huge fan. I always feel like I have to say I'm not a huge Donald Trump guy. Mm-hmm. I voted for him at the last second with my hand over my nose. Um, I, uh, I, I I guess a couple things bother me. I, I kind of side with Rand Paul, and I, I like Rand Paul as a candidate. Actually, mm-hmm. um, a few things I, I I see so often. The Weekly Standard. I used to read them every day, and so so much of what I read was based on you know intervention spreading kind of George W. Bush's idea, spreading democracy around the world, and, mm-hmm. you know, spending tons of American lives, you know, young people my age right after 9-11. I was a sophomore uh, in college at that time. And, you know, it all sounded great. And it turned out that our, our uh, you know, intelligence was wrong. We had that, what's that guy's name, Strzok, right? I, I can see his name in my Peter
0: Strzok, yeah, who was openly hostile to the president. yeah,
5: Yeah, and we see him, like, you know, on... Uh, before Congress, I watched the whole thing and how there's so much, you know, dis- disingenuousness. Uh, and, you know, and just, I, so I, I, as much as I hate the way Trump does it, and I hate the the places that he chooses to do it, I think his skepticism of our current system and, and the integrity that some people in that system have, right. I, I think is well-founded and, um, I, I guess I just don't really, the weekly standard, I don't think has a moral high ground in this issue because of some of the things that they've supported it. Interesting. It's to be just false, in my opinion.
0: All right, I appreciate the, uh, the opinion, Jacob, appreciate the insight. And look, when it comes to the details of foreign policy and interventionism, or you may even characterize it as neoconservatism of the weekly standard, I would probably find myself more in line with Rand Paul's views than uh, the Weekly Standards as well. That doesn't mean they're wrong on their take on this issue. You know, it's, again, things, ha- I, I, it frustrates me that I even have to say this, but we we have to be willing and able to judge things on their merits, not on the associations involved in how they happened you know it's it's the old ad hominem fallacy the notion that an argument is wrong or right because of who said it rather than the merits of the argument it's possible that donald trump was wrong in this move yesterday it's possible that he was wrong to credit vladimir putin with unscrew you know unscreening With the ability to say things that are true without any sort of criticism of being untouchable, basically, while at the same time undermining the credibility of his own intelligence services. It's possible that he was wrong to do that, and at the same time, he's right on a bunch of other stuff, right? It's possible that the left and the Weekly Standard and the media is right to criticize him for what he did with Vladimir Putin and is wrong about virtually everything else that they talk about and everything else that they pursue. We have lost this ability as a society to distinguish between, well, basically to be objective, to judge something on its merits rather than asking ourselves, well, who said it? or who's for it, or who's against it, and then deciding based on that, based on the association, which side we're going to take, which side we're going to afford credibility. That is a mistake, and it's a fatal mistake that's going to lead us in the wrong direction. Let's consider what Rand Paul had to say over The Daily Wire. Got a piece here written by Joseph Curl. He writes, a former Obama official deemed it treason. A CNN analyst called for a shadow government to take Trump out. And Senator John McCain, the namby-pamby Republican who could never win the White House, hated every second of it. We're talking, of course, about Monday's Helsinki summit between President Trump and uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin. Trump embraced the leader of America's most powerful foe, and the U.S. and world media, along with every Democrat on Capitol Hill, went apoplectic. There's a simple explanation. It's all part of Trump derangement syndrome, says Senator Rand Paul. Any country that can spy does, and any country that can meddle in foreign elections does, the Kentucky Republican said Monday on CNN. All countries are doing this, but we've elevated this to a higher degree, and we've made this all about the sour grapes of Hillary Clinton losing the election, and it's all about partisan politics now. This is truly the Trump derangement syndrome that motivates all of this, Paul said. Paul said it's important for the U.S. to continue engagement with our adversaries. We should look for ways to make the dialogue better. But he also said people should focus on what truly matters. What I would say, this is Rand Paul talking, is that instead of making this about everything is about Trump and accusing Trump of collusion with the Russians and all of this craziness that's not true, we should try to protect the integrity of our elections, he said. Nobody is talking about protecting the integrity of elections. How would you protect the integrity of the elections? Make sure they're decentralized. Make sure there's very good controls from the precinct on up. Make sure we're not storing the data in a centralized area where there aren't checks and balances at the local area. There are a lot of ways to make sure our election is not tampered with, Paul said. And he went on in this regard. And look, he's right. He's absolutely right. Why couldn't Donald Trump answer the question in this way? Right, like This would have been a brilliant deflection on Donald Trump's part that would have had the merit of actually being relevant to the issue at hand. You know, when the media asks, well, what about the interference or the meddling, but with, from the Russians in the 2016 election, you know, Trump could have said something along the lines of, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. We need to make sure that every ballot that's cast in the United States of America is cast by somebody who has the verified right to vote. And that there is no fraud in our system, that there aren't people out there who, you know, through malicious action, are depriving American citizens of their constitutional right to express themselves in their democratic processes. Now, obviously, Donald Trump is never going to say anything that sounds remotely like what I just said, but the 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 heart of it, right? The sentiment being like, because the brilliance of that response is that it throws the issue back in the Democrats and back in the media's court of are they actually going to... Are they going to actually care about election integrity? Are they actually going to care about the the health of the electoral system and the ability of the individual voter to cast a ballot that counts and that's not canceled out? Or is their concern strictly partisan? Is their concern, concern strictly about undermining President Trump and undermining Republicans and getting Democrats in there in 2018 during the midterm elections. And we all know the answer to that question. But this response, the way Rand Paul responds to it, would provide the means to expose it. Closing argument. We'll be back after the break. 651-989-5855. Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. (laughs) Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Closing Argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Catch us streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. Catch up on past shows by doing a search for Closing Argument in your iHeartRadio app. Got a channel there that'll pop up with past episodes. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us Brad Umland taking those calls and producing the show. Speaking of election integrity, there's an organization here in Minnesota called the Minnesota Voters Alliance that has been doing the yeoman's work of tracking down election fraud and investigating ways in which our electoral process here in the state of Minnesota can ensure greater integrity and greater security so that your ballot can be cast with confidence that your vote will count and not be watered down or canceled out by a fraudulent vote. And they've been uh, engaged in a, on a variety of fronts in that pursuit, and one of those involves a request to get information from the Secretary of State, Steve Simon, and they've been involved in a legal battle to that effect and have had a recent development that – uh Went their way on the line to talk to us about it. Dan McGrath from the Minnesota Voters Alliance. Appreciate you joining the program again tonight, Dan.
6: Thanks for having me on, Walter. Always a pleasure. Yeah, we're really excited that we've got this win. It's been a year-long legal battle with the Secretary of State, and a judge found with the Minnesota Voters Alliance last week that the data we're looking for to investigate potential irregularities in our election system is public, Mm -hmm. and the Secretary of State is obligated to provide it. Now the court order gave them ten days to provide the data, but just today we've heard that the order has been stayed. The secretary of state is appealing the decision, mm-hmm. so we have to go through the appeals process. It may wind up still in the Minnesota Supreme Court, yet to be seen. But we have to wait now for the appeals process to play out before we can get access to the data.
0: It's really fascinating to me because my read on this, and obviously I've I've been following it from a distance, and you know certainly correct my perception if it is wrong. But my read on this is that Steve Simon is essentially making up the law out of whole cloth or he's trying to interpret it in s- such a way that it has the effect he wants rather than the clear meaning of how it's written. You know, with the, he's basically saying, well, you know, certain categories of voter information are not public for reasons that I've invented that have nothing in, no basis in legislated reality.
6: Well, exactly. Now, the statutes are clear. So this, this goes to the Minnesota Data Practices Act, which is a law that presumes all government data is public. Unless a particular piece of data is specific, specifically classified in law as non-public or private. right, And our election statutes do classify certain pieces of, of voters' information as private, and we're not asking for that. Right, Those are like your driver's license number, mm-hmm. your social security number, mm-hmm. a complete date of birth, things that could be used for identity theft or other nefarious purposes right. are not public, and they shouldn't be. Right, We're not asking for that. What we're asking for is data that is provided routinely for 2.7 million voters after any given election, Mm -hmm. in addition to one little bit of information, was this voter challenged? Was their eligibility questioned by our government officials or not? We want that piece of information, and we want information on the other voters who are registered who have gone inactive,
3: because
6: they haven't voted for a while, or because they failed an address verification check. So those are ones we're interested in. If you gave an address, that didn't check out. We want that information, but that information is being hidden, right? Well, so and- the only information they're hiding is information that would point to voter fraud,
0: right? Exactly, and that's just it. Is it? It seems as though the the strategy here is just to obstruct as long as they can. You know, try to wait you guys out. Try to bleed your legal coffers dry. And hope for the hail Mary pass that at some point they'll find a judge or a panel of judges who will basically invent, in an activist fashion, some sort of justification for interpreting the law in some way other than how it's clearly written.
6: I think you've stated their strategy pretty well. Um, it's going to be difficult. Uh, judge Fresh, who heard our case, was on the. She knew the issues. She understood what, what was what was at stake. What the legal issues were and issued an opinion that was pretty solid. It's going to be very difficult for the state to overcome that.
3: Mm-hmm.
6: Uh, she called the Secretary of State's position untenable, mm. and it was very explicit as to how the statutes interplay and give us access to this data. And for, for any appeals judge, I mean, they would have to be really far out in left field to overturn this ruling. But you're right. They are trying to bleed us of resources. They've got unlimited tax dollars right. behind right. them. Right. We have to go out begging for money. Hmm. <laughs> this is important. First, we have to convince people that it's important, and then convince us to fund us to a level that we can match the lawyers and uh, taxpayer resources of the Secretary of State's office.
0: Well, along with that legal strategy, there also seems to be, and this is speculation on my part, but it seems to be fairly rational, There seems to be a political strategy here as well in that if they they can continue to create this narrative that the the privacy of voters is under assault by this vile conservative organization that's trying to intimidate people and keep them from the polls because that's their narrative. The longer they can keep that hacky sack up in the air, the more hay they can make with it going into the 2018 midterms. And if they lose, which they should then they can, you know, cast that as some sort of, you know, they can fundraise off of that and make that a political strategy as well.
6: Well, oh, absolutely. The Secretary is taking a position as he's some kind of defender of the downtrodden and the right. ordinary citizen, you know, protecting your private data your private election data as though we're like gonna find out who you voted for, which is impossible. Right. From right. this right wing <laughs> lunatic fringe organization right. with wild claims of voter fraud that doesn't exist, by the way. Yeah. So yeah, they they present this narrative that they're protecting private data. They're not. Well and it's the, the information that anyone would be worried about getting released mm-hmm. to an organization such as the Minnesota Voters Alliance or any other organization is already available to anyone with forty six bucks. Right. You get right. on the Secretary of State's office, they give you a CD. I get your first name, your middle name, your last name, your address, your year of birth, not the complete date of birth, mm-hmm. your telephone number, mm-hmm. the elections and precincts that you voted in for the last four years. Right. And if you voted in a primary, it'll even tell me which party you picked to vote in for that primary. All that information is freely provided by the Secretary of State right now. Yeah. We're asking for, well, were they challenged? Right. And let's, let's take a look at all those other voters that you took off the active voter rolls. That's it.
0: And, and it strikes me that even if, you know, because the, the legal argument, as you said, the, the judgment put forward by Judge uh, Freisch in this instance is pretty sound in terms of, you know, just what is and isn't public information. But even if you set that argument aside, the counter-narrative put forward by the Secretary of State, Steve Simon, That release of this information would somehow be a violation of the privacy rights of Minnesota voters or that it would somehow be harmful to Minnesota voters seems to be missing some sort of rational case for how that harm would actually be inflicted. Like, what are you going to do with the precincts that I voted in? and my phone number, and my year of birth, what are you going to do to me with that information? How are you going to formulate some sort of strategy to keep me from the polls if that indeed was the the motivation? Like, there's no rational basis for even making this case that it's somehow going to fuel a voter intimidation effort.
6: The only thing that we could do is if we found someone who voted while they were ineligible and mm. prove it, Right. So we can get them prosecuted because right. state law requires that county attorneys investigate and, upon finding probable cause, prosecute voter fraud. So if we present evidence of voter fraud to a county attorney, they're obligated to prosecute that case. So the only harm that could be done to anyone is if they broke the law. Correct. We might, we might catch them, right. and then they might have to pay a consequence.
0: And in so doing, through your private efforts, actually accomplish what the executive branch is there to do and isn't doing.
6: Well, it's what we're supposed to do, what we expect our government to do. Steve Simon comes forward and he says, okay, I'm the chief election official. By the way, I'm a partisan elected official myself. Mm-hmm. I preside over my own election and the elections of my fellow partisans, my fellow Democrats. I preside over all those elections. I have a monopoly on the data. Mm-hmm. But you're just going to have to trust me when I say our elections are clean.
3: Right. No, you can't look at the books. Right.
6: This is like going to a casino and playing blackjack blindfolded. Mm-hmm. The dealer says, sorry, you busted. No, you can't look at your cards. Better luck next time. Right. Well, <laughs> Who and would that's... play that game? Who would put money on that right. game? But that's how our elections work.
0: Well, that's just it, is it's, you know, like you say, anybody could get this information. It'd be one thing if through some uh, mechanism that doesn't even exist, you were asking it to get data that nobody else w- was able to look at, but literally anybody can request this data and ought to have access to it. So the-
6: Right, with the exception, the unusual piece we're asking for is the challenged information that's mm. not routinely provided on the public information CD, mm. not routinely. But the Information Policy Analysis Division, part of state government that governs government data practice act requests, said that that information is public. It's historically been public. Right. We got access to this data before, after the 2008 election.
0: Well, and that's why you're not getting it now.
6: Exactly. Because we proved a significant number of ineligible people participated in that election. Record number of convictions resulted. The Secretary of State's office was embarrassed by what we found. Right. And now they've clamped down on the data. Oh, we're not going to let them look at that again.
0: Yeah. Well, I very much appreciate the, the work that you guys are doing. I uh, appreciate the effort put in there by Andy like the executive director over there at the Minnesota Voters Alliance, and yourself. And keep us informed, and we'll be watching the news for how things pan out.
6: Make sure you tell your listeners to check out Minnesota, mnvoters.org so we can use their support.
0: mnvoters.org. Be sure to, to check that site out and see if uh, you can support them. Appreciate the work you're doing, Dan. Have a good night. Yeah. So from the Star Tribune here, Minnesota Secretary of State Steve Simon has 10 days to provide voter information to the Minnesota Voters Alliance. And this was several days ago that this was published. A Ramsey County judge ruled Friday in the year old dispute over access to the state's voter rolls. Simon's office immediately announced that he would file a motion to put the order on hold pending his appeal. And apparently that has taken place, according to the conversation we just had with Dan McGrath of the Minnesota Voters Alliance. Andy Selick, the executive director of that organization, called the decision game-changing. He faulted Simon for turning a blind eye to ineligible voting and hiding the data that proves it. In January of 2017, the Minnesota Voters Alliance formally asked Simon for access to an electronic copy of data in the statewide voter registration system, including voter identification, number, name, address, phone number, year of birth, voting history, type of ballot, absentee or in-person, voter status, active, inactive, deleted, challenger, reason for challenge, and all other information. In August of uh, 2017, Simon told the group it was entitled only to the name, address, year of birth, history, district, and phone number, He told the group the information about the type of ballot status and challenges wasn't public. Judge Jennifer Fresh disagreed. In her opinion, she said the information sought by the MVA exists in the computerized statewide voter system that contains 19 separate fields of data on approximately 5.4 million individual voters. The Minnesota Voters Alliance frequently challenges election laws and recently won in a U.S. Supreme Court case. In that case, Minnesota law barring people from wearing political clothing to the polls was struck down. While the group describes itself on the website as a nonpartisan political organization, its legal claims of widespread fraudulent voting align with similar assertions by Republican-leaning groups. DFLers and supporters countered that the claims of fraud are a ruse aimed at intimidating voters and suppressing turnout. And uh, the Secretary of State, Steve Simon, is a DFLer. And again, my my question is, and it's a sincere question to the Democrats, how how does... (laughs) How does proving that somebody voted fraudulently intimidate legitimate voters? This is the question that you have to answer to rational satisfaction. And it's pretty obvious that it doesn't. Like it, this is a question that cannot be answered. And so they're not going to address it head on. Uh, they're going to they're going to continue with vague rhetorical language meant to frighten people. And avoid any specificity because they cannot win on the merits, as is so often the case with the left. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, twincitiesnewstalk.com. Yeah, we've reached a new threshold of stupidity in our culture, and it's willful. It's purposeful. It's a decision to be stupid, which I don't know if that is stupidity. Like, that's something more malicious than stupidity. Like, stupidity, it can just be ignorance, right? Or misguided, you know, an error, an honest mistake, you know? You can't, you can't necessarily, like a true idiot, like a real stupid person, shouldn't really necessarily be castigated for their lack of intelligence. If it's legitimately they're not smart enough, then it's no fault of their own, right? But what we're dealing with in the culture today is our fault. It, it is the fault of the culture. It is a product of choices that have been made by individuals and institutions within the culture. And so, to that effect, I don't know if it's accurate to just say that it's stupid. I'll have to, come, I'll have to think a little bit on what a more proper adjective is. It's malicious ignorance. Willful ignorance, at the very least. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855, the number to join us. This is the example I want to bounce off of here from BBC News. Now, we talked a little bit about this backlash that emerged in the wake of the news that Scarlett Johansson was cast to play a transgender man in a upcoming motion picture. And apparently at some point along the lines in the, the progressive woke intersectional minority circles at some point in the recent past, it was decided that you can't play a transgender person unless you are transgender. And apparently this applies to all minority groups. Like you can't play a homosexual unless you're actually homosexual which will be news to the cast of Will and Grace, because I know at least one of the guys was not, right? Uh, and not to mention the fact, in, in the first article that we read about this situation with Scarlett Johansson, they went down the list of all the actors in recent years who have played transgender characters who are themselves not transgender. And it wasn't a problem then, but it's a problem now. And the worst news is that this this backlash, this social media Fervor has been effective from BBC News. U.S. actor Scarlett Johansson has dropped out of a role in which she was going to play a transgender man following a backlash from the LGBT community. The Avengers star was set to play 1970s Pittsburgh crime boss Dante Tex Gill, who was born Gene Gill in the movie called Rub and Tug but she was criticized by those who said the role should have gone to a transgender actor. I've learned a lot from the community since making my first statement. Johansson told out magazine. While I would have loved the opportunity to bring Dante's story and transition to life. I understand why many feel he should have be, he should be portrayed by a transgender person. I'm thankful that this casting debate has sparked a larger conversation about diversity and representation in film. She said, so let me go out on a limb, and predict something about the future of this film called Rub and Tug. One of two things. Either it's not going to happen, it's not going to be made, or it's going to be made and nobody's going to go see it. Nobody.
1: Well, it might just be like a cult film where it's kind of the celebration for the LGBT community, and that's it. Sure,
0: sure. Here's the thing. Nobody wants to go. You, the reason why, you know, they get into here talking about the original announcement. The original announcement was met with intense criticism, and some said it showed the limited opportunities given to transgender actors. Tracy Lassette, who stars in the Amazon series Transparent, said it was representative of a wider problem in Hollywood. She said, I wouldn't be as upset if I was getting in the same rooms as Jennifer Lawrence and Scarlett for cis roles. And I'm referring to cis gender which means normal people. But we know that's not the case, she tweeted. Now, here's the thing. Tracy, nobody wants to see you in a movie, right? Like, that's why you're not getting cast. No, Number one, nobody knows who you are. Number two, even if they did, they still wouldn't want to see you. Because, in no small part, because you're transgender. yes. I just said that there is no market or a very limited, very niche market for transgender Hollywood stars. Nobody's looking for that. You know, when they're, when they're sitting around on a Friday night, a Saturday night thinking, gee, what am I going to do tonight? What, what movie am I going to take my girlfriend to? What movie am I going to go out with my buddies to see? Hmm. Oh, look, oh, there's a Tracy Lassette film where she, he plays a what's-it. That'll be fun. Let's go check it out. No, nobody is, there's no market for this. There was a market, potentially, a a nonetheless niche market, for Scarlett Johansson to play this interesting character. People might have been interested in going to see her play this role, because it's, it's, first of all, it's Scarlett Johansson, which, which, you know, I hate to break it to you, kind of matters right she's a star for reasons people want to see her generally speaking but then on top of that this would be a role that's that's outside of her typical comfort zone it's off brand it's different you know what people would be looking for in going to see this with scarlet in it is to, is this thing called acting right like they would be oh Wow, Scarlett Johansson is going to play a transgender man. That, that's off type. Let's go see how talented she really is. Let's go see if we believe that Scarlett Johansson is a transgender man. That would be the interest. That would be the value proposition. Now there is none. Now, if Tracy Lassette or some other transgender is cast in order to play this role, I now officially have zero reason to go see the movie. I didn't have much before, but you know, Scarlett Johansson was pretty much it. That was pretty much the reason. Let's talk to Don in Brooklyn Center. Welcome to the program.
7: Yeah. Hey. Uh, thank you for taking my call. You know, it, it, you know, it isn't so much the fact that uh, Scarlett Johansson was going to play a transgender person, but exactly how is that different than um, uh, Sean Penn playing Milk? Yeah. The uh the, the
0: homosexual activist. Right. It,
7: it, it, yeah. Uh, in in that movie.
0: You it's know? not It's not. I
7: mean, I mean, uh you have people that may be uh in a wheelchair.
0: Right. Right.
7: So therefore then only those people in a wheelchair right. can play a wheelchair. That's
0: right. Yeah. this you is know? It's ridiculous. I mean... I mean, forget about know, period pieces, because there's I, nobody from I the 16th been, century, I, so...
7: You know, I've been in theater since high school, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I knew we had gay people.
3: Yeah, right.
7: But nobody cared. Right. Nobody cared. Right. And so now, obviously, now we have to kowtow to anybody that that has some sexual preference other than what would be considered a norm.
0: Yeah. I, I appreciate get it. Yeah, I appreciate I the thoughts done. And I, I don't get it either. Although it it's I do get that it's damaging to our culture in ways far more profound than whether or not Scarlett Johansson gets to make a movie, and we'll get into that when we return. Closing argument, my name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. So we've now reached a point in the culture where... We're so woke that acting can't even be a thing anymore. Like the essence of what acting is, obviously, is pretending to be somebody you're not and doing so in a convincing way that has veracity, right? Where where there's a sense of truth to the portrayal. It's a skill. It's a talent. We recognize excellence in this endeavor, through awards like the Oscars and through financial success found at the box office and you know, other endeavors, other means, television ratings, what have you. And This is really obvious. It's stunning that s- such self-evident statements have to be made, and yet they clearly do in light of an effort that has emerged on the left to shame people for taking roles wherein they have to pretend to be somebody that they're not. Scarlett Johansson has just quit a role that she earned where she was going to play a transgender character. It's a story based on a a true real-life event or series of events involving a, a crime boss from the 1970s who was a transgender man. She was going to play the role... And the LGBT community went nuts because this is apparently some sort of slight against them. This is a role that should have gone to a transgender actor, actress. I don't know which word to use. I'm not sure they do either. I'm sure there's some third option, some third gobbledygook option I'm supposed to trot out. Not gonna. And so now Scarlett Johansson has walked away and conceded the point that she was out of line to accept a role in a movie playing somebody that she's not. Cause apparently that's something actors don't do. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, twin cities news talk, AM 1130, one Oh three, five FM twin cities, news Your I Heart radio app, two ways to stream us. We're here. Nine to 11 weeknights, Six five one nine eight nine five eight five five. the number to join us, Brad Olman, taking those calls and producing the show. Let's go to John in Minneapolis. Thanks for holding.
2: Hey, Walter, how's it going? Good. Um,
6: this whole conversation brings me uh, two examples that kind of hit close to home to me. I'm a mixed guy, but uh, it reminds me of the Zoe Saldana uh, Nina Simone biopic where the black population was up in arms because she wasn't dark enough. And then the other example is, and I want to get your thoughts about this, the other example was um, one of the members of the Black Panther movie was supposed to uh, portray a member, and she was light-skinned, and, You know, she said, I felt bad because I wasn't dark enough. It's the same same thing. Yeah, I mean, people are up in arms. And it seems like these minority groups, quote-unquote minority groups, uh, who are saying, well, we're the most uh, prejudiced against, have the same prejudice against their own kind. And like I said, for me, it hits home because I'm a mixed guy. And it's like, well, you're not black enough. it's like, so,
7: let's get your thoughts.
0: Yeah, I appreciate it, John. Look, it's, it's hard to even analyze. It really is. How do you, because you have to you have to try to adopt the worldview that's being brought to the table and look through the prism that these people are looking through in order to try to understand how they're seeing things the way that they are. And that is a tall order. because Basically, because like I said at the outset, the whole thing's stupid, right? Like it's beyond dumb. It's a willful rejection of reality. To the point where, you know, John brings up Black Panther, Black Panther, which I enjoyed. I thought it was a good movie. I thought it was an entertaining piece of cinematic adventure, right? A Marvel movie. You know, decent. Middle of the road, probably better than average Marvel film. This was hailed as some sort of massive cultural achievement along the lines of, like, getting rid of Jim Crow or marching on Washington in 1964, the fact that Black Panther was made. Oh, for the first time ever, Black people are in movies. No, that's not true. Black people have been in movies for a very long time. Well, it's the first time that we've had a black lead. No, it's not. Not even by a long shot. you're you're missing that, Mark, by decades. Well, it's the first black superhero movie. No. mm No, it's not true. We had three blade films that, you know, were <laughs> ranged in quality, but nonetheless existed black guy. And you know, the amazing thing is When those movies came out, and I'm not even sure those are the first black. In fact, I know because I just remembered another one. Anybody remember Meteor Man? You might have to, you might have to Google that one. It was not good. Came out when I was a kid. Meteor Man. (laughs) That's pretty bad. But black superhero. When these movies came out, whether it's Meteor Man or Blade or, you know, whatever the case may be, there was not a big to do about finally. A black person is at the head of a movie. Finally, we have a black superhero. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. They just wanted to go see the movie for its own sake and judge it on its merits. Some were judged good because they were good. Some were judged poorly because they were poorly made. And that's where the focus was. Is this actually a good movie or a bad movie? Is it a good story or a bad story? Is it well told or is it poorly told? Is the actor worth their salt or not? And part of the basis for how you determine whether that the actor is worth their salt is, you know, how far, how much did they have to work in order to portray this character? It's part of the challenge, right? Like the uh, the Oscar bait roles, which no doubt this was on Scarlett Johansson's part, an Oscar bait role. The Oscar bait roles are the ones where you have to push yourself furthest against type, you know. Tom Hanks in Forrest Gump. We already heard the example tonight of Sean Penn in Milk. When when you see uh, Charlize Theron in Monster. And uh, Jared Leto in Dallas Buyers Club, where he played a transgender female, I guess is how you're supposed to refer to it. I'm not sure how that works, which direction the terminology goes.
1: If you are... If you were a man who is now a female, you are a transgender female. Okay, so Jarrett Leto played a
0: transgender female in Dallas Buyers Club, which I enjoyed. Good movie, well told, brilliant performances by all involved. Dallas Buyers Club, a movie about AIDS, and libertarianism, by the way, right? Defiance of the FDA in an effort to pursue medical treatments that were not approved by the government, right? Great film. You should watch it. It's got a transgender character in it played by Jared Leto. Check it out. Right. But this is apparently a problem. Now we apparently can't go in this direction. And it's because the the left is quite literally ruining everything. Like they're on a mission to ruin things, to, to suck the fun out and enjoyment out of life and to undermine even the most trivial aesthetic pursuits like, who's going to be cast for a movie? And it goes beyond that. It's, it's more insidious and deep than that in terms of the effect that they're having on our culture. There's a piece here in the Washington Post written by Daniela Greenbaum. She writes, As an opinion columnist for Business Insider until my resignation last week, I had grown accustomed to strong reactions from readers when I wrote about Hamas. I'm not a fan or the problems with accusations of cultural appropriation, but I didn't see this one coming. Commenting on recent criticism of actress Scarlett Johansson for taking a movie role that called on her to portray a transgender man, I made the commonsensical, and I admit not particularly original, observation that actors specialize in make-believe and ought to be allowed to take any jobs they like. The brief online post stirred immediate fury. Among some of my business insider colleagues, as has been reported elsewhere, several people within the organization complained to the editor who responded by scrubbing the Scarlett Johansson post from the site and instituting a new policy of requiring culturally sensitive work to be reviewed by an executive editor or an editor in chief before it can be published. As the Daily Beast reported, he also suggested that writers and editors talk with a group of employees who would volunteer to be sounding boards on issues of cultural sensitivity. Given that in these thin-skinned days, just about any subject can be called culturally sensitive, and given that a committee would basically ensure that my column became a safe space, I had no alternative but to resign. And so I've had the disorienting experience of becoming one small data point in what is a disturbingly large set. Columnists on the right and the left have known for years about the ferocious blowback that awaits the expression of unpopular ideas, but now the definition of unpopular has expanded so widely that reasonable views that might have seemed mainstream just a few years ago can be deemed unacceptable by self-appointed censors. Even publications that pride themselves on holding open-minded values are watching their backs. We are slowly normalizing the policing of speech and opinion, sometimes overtly and sometimes through the intimidation that stops people from saying or writing or publishing what they believe because they know that the social media mob is lying in wait. We'll continue with this when we return closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, twincitiesnewstalk.com. So I want to continue with this op ed in the Washington Post. Written by a gal named Danielle Greenbaum, Daniela Greenbaum, I should say, who had to quit her job for Business Insider when she became the target of controversy, not from without, but from within her own organization. She wrote a piece in response to the news that Scarlett Johansson uh, was under attack for taking a movie role to portray a transgender man. You know, she had the audacity to make a short online post at Business Insider, you know, noting noting the controversial uh, position that actors engage in make-believe, actors act, they pretend to be something that they're not, and that they ought to be able to take any job that uh, somebody is willing to give them. That was too controversial for her colleagues at Business Insider, who riding on the wave of LGBT indignation effectively drummed her out of her job. And so she used this experience as a jumping-off point to uh, write a piece over at the Washington Post talking about the direction our culture is taking. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. She writes, We are slowly normalizing the policing of speech and opinion, sometimes overtly and sometimes through the intimidation that stops people from saying or writing or publishing what they believe because they know that the social media mob is lying in wait. These hordes might come from the left or the right, or from Russian bot farms. The thing to remember is that they are not the majority, not even close. They're just louder, and they're here to stay. The only responsible reaction must come from their would-be targets, refusing to allow the definition of what is acceptable thought to be wielded like a cudgel. Some opinion is beyond the pale, and deserves to be shunned, not obliterated, But allowing the lines to be redrawn at will by those who have no interest in free speech will ultimately be poisonous for democracy. The problem is not confined to the college campus where conservative speakers are being shouted down or disinvited. It's not confined to the media where publications and television stations and their audiences seem increasingly comfortable in liberal or conservative silos where conflicting outlooks and even conflicting information are unwelcome. It's beginning to permeate every area where we use language, every area of life. The only way to fight it is head on. Defend the idea that more speech is always better. The best way to put bad arguments to bed is to air them out and highlight their weaknesses. Want to eliminate unsafe thoughts? Turn them loose in the marketplace of ideas and debate them. Don't try to silence them. Now, this is where I want to break out from her commentary and address why this isn't happening. Why? Because, you know, what she says to you and me, what she's prescribing here is really obvious, right? Free speech is a good thing. The marketplace of ideas is where we test the veracity of information. It's how we determine what's right and what's wrong. And we shouldn't be afraid of confronting crazy or wrong ideas because we can do so rationally and and through the test of the marketplace of ideas determine what is true and what is false and react accordingly. The question that's begged here is why doesn't the left want to do that? You know, and, and she goes out of her way to, you know, make this a bipartisan thing. The left, the right does it too. And, you know, yeah, are there elements on the right that engage in the suppression of ideas? Sure. But this is primarily a leftist problem. This is not something that's happening widespread with people who identify as conservative, people who identify as republics. This is primarily leftists and leftist institutions in the media, in the academy, who are engaged in these processes. The question is why? And the answer is, in my view, that there is quite literally a war on truth. A war on truth as such, out of necessity, out of necessity, because the left's, worldview the number one enemy of the left is the truth
1: well if we know anything about institutionalized wars they just make things more prevalent (laughs) this is true but but the number one enemy of the left is the truth
0: their entire worldview collapses in the light of the truth you know we didn't get to it tonight maybe we'll get to it tomorrow but you know uh Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is at it again with her claims regarding socialism and capitalism and history and everything she says, every word that drops from her mouth is either stupid or a lie. It's a complete mischaracterization of the truth. And if you examine her claims, it's very easy to pick them apart and prove that she doesn't know what she's talking about or that she's intentionally misleading people. But In order to do that, in order to engage in that, you have to be free to do so, right? Like you have to be able to actually step up to the proverbial mic and say, um, she's wrong and here's why. And the left knows that they will not win that fight. They will not win in an actual free marketplace of ideas because their worldview is not based upon fact. It's not based upon reason. It's not based upon the truth. And so the only option they have available to them is to suppress speech. They can't fight. They can't argue. They can't combat. They can't debate in the marketplace of ideas. So they have to shut their opposition up. That's what lies at the heart of this. And it's gotten to the point where it's so... It's, it's proliferated the culture to the extent that even people who identify as liberals, such as Scarlett Johansson in Hollywood can 't get away with something as innocuous as taking on a role portraying a transgender character because you know we we might we might discover something through that process right like it's more important it's more important to a- affirm the idea of transgenderism as acceptable through the casting of a transgender person than it is to tell a story about a transgender person with somebody who one can actually portray it and two people might actually want to go see this is the level of absurdity that we've reached closing argument my name is walter hudson twin cities